Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest and best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software, and executive vice president at Lenosity. Today, we're really pleased to welcome Alina Vondavia, PhD, who's Chief of Assessment at Duolingo. At Duolingo, Vondavia and her team operate at the forefront of computational psychometrics. Her current research interests involve developing psychometric methodologies in support of digital first assessments, such as the Duolingo English test, using techniques incorporating machine learning, data mining, Bayesian inference methods, and stochastic processes. Prior to Duolingo, Alina was Chief Officer at ACT, where she led ACT Next, a large R&D innovation unit. And before that, she was a senior research director at ETS, where she led the Computational Psychometrics Research Center. And previous to that, again, she led the Center for Psychometrics for International Tests, responsible for the psychometrics in support of the international tests TOEFL and TOEIC, and for the scores reported to millions of test takers annually. Alina has won numerous awards around her work. In 2020, she was awarded a career award from the Association of Test Publishers, ATP, and she was recently elected to serve as the 2022 ATP board chair, uh, where I've come to know her via the ATP board. Welcome, Alina. Really pleased to have you with us. Hello, John. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited about this session and about sharing my experience with the audience. So thank you. And let's get started with the question I ask everybody. How did you get into assessment? This is a really good story because my background is in mathematics. I have a master's in mathematics from uh, Bucharest, Romania, and a PhD in mathematics from Germany. And uh, both dissertations were actually about uh, either very pure mathematics in algebra and then applied mathematics. Thesis was on testing for unconfoundedness uh, in causal inference models. So you can imagine it's not quite an assessment topic, but then I came to the United States. My family and I came to the United States and I applied for a job at the educational testing service. And I worked with Paul Holland, a brilliant statistician uh, and um, a luminary in our field. And I was extremely fortunate to do so. And with him, I learned a lot about assessment and a lot about test equating. I didn't even know the word equating uh, when I joined ETS. So it was quite a ride, I would say, since then. Uh, so that's how it all started, with causal inferences moving into assessment. And if I understand right, causal inferences about things like a correlation doesn't necessarily mean that it causes something and mathematics around that. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And what, what was it like working at ETS? So when I started, which was about uh, almost 20 years ago now, uh, it was a wonderful place. I really grew up there and uh, it felt like Hogwarts in Harry Potter. Things could happen. People had wonderful ideas about uh, the quality of our work, about the mission of uh, our work. Uh, we would definitely use the Hippocratic um, oath of do no harm for all the decisions that we were implementing. So it was a really nice place to be. I also, as I mentioned before, was fortunate to work in um, uh, research and development. 
I started there. I wrote my first book in the United States on kernel equating, developing a new method. And then ETS was very flexible. So I wanted to see my work implemented in operational settings. So therefore, I moved from R&D into what was called at that time statistical analysis, which is more on the operational arm of psychometrics. And uh, I enjoy both experiences very much. I actually found the operational uh, side of ETS extremely rewarding because that's where you get the most interesting problems that you need to solve. And I found that uh, this type of problems represent a good source for ideas for research. And that led to a lot of subsequent research that I've done, including some of the papers and books, uh, such as the work on adaptive testing and multi-stage adaptive testing, um, as well as the work on uh, collaborative assessment and uh, in investigating computational models for assessment. Alina, I think uh, at ETS, you did quite a lot of work with TOEFL and especially making it fair when it was delivered continuously. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So when I joined the TOEFL team uh, at that time, TOEFL was about uh, six to eight months into the new TOEFL uh, when it moved to be back a linear test. But what the biggest changes for the new TOEFL was that it was truly administered almost continuously. So almost every week there was an administration. And in that context, I started to uh, evaluate how what is the best way to make sure that such a test is, is valid over time. How do you evaluate that a test that is almost continuous fulfills the requirement of comparability over time? So in that context, I brought in some of my knowledge in mathematics and statistics, especially on uh, quality control. And I started to evaluate the, the TOEFL administration data, taking into account seasonality, taking into account the data from the previous years, and therefore changing the paradigm to how quality control for continuous assessment um, has been done. Prior to that, uh, most of us, more the community, was just using evaluating the results, comparing it to the just the previous administration. But for a test that is that rich, like TOEFL or other tests like Duolingo English test, making that comparison is almost meaningless. It's much more important to look at, say, uh, previous years to investigate whether there is a seasonality in the data, whether different types of people take the test at a particular point in time. So that was that also resulted in quite a lot of research on quality control. Uh, and I think many other assessment nowadays are using those tools. So tell us a little bit more about seasonality. Does that mean that at some times of the year, high caliber people take the test? And so you need to adjust for that? Yes. Yes and no. So it, not necessarily to adjust, but to understand how to how it works and how to appropriately run the equating, so the comparability studies. So what happens is the in high stakes assessments like TOEFL, um, people select themselves for taking the test. And there are times in the year where, as you said, very high caliber people will take the test because there is a deadline. Either there is a deadline for hiring or there is a deadline for 
universities in different parts of the world. So those deadline leads to very specific types of seasonalities. We also know that there are times in the year when people will take the test rather to practice as opposed to seriously taking the test and do their best. Um, and those will be the low, um, uh, the low uh, valleys in, uh, in the uh, distribution of the test during the year. So what that means for a statistician is that one needs to evaluate that seasonality. And when we evaluate uh, whether a mean is uh, of the test scores at a given administration is comparable to the ones before and to ensure that there are no undesirable trends, we evaluate those taking into account the seasonality. We apply specific statistical models for that, uh, harmonic regression in particular, for those who are more interested in that type of work. And then we will uh, evaluate uh, the level of seasonality. And after that, we will apply all the other statistics, mostly on the residuals. So there are specific statistical techniques that can be very useful for evaluating the, the quality of an assessment over time when the assessment is continuous or almost continuous. Tell me a little bit about fairness, because that's at the heart of what you were doing, I'm sure, with TOEFL and also still now at Duolingo. What are the key things to think about in fairness and testing? Thank you for this question. It's really one of my favorite topics. So fairness, especially from an assessment expert perspective, has multiple um, connotations. So we talk about fairness with respect to specific groups. And we want to make sure that the test is, uh, uh, is appropriate for all types of test takers. In the United States, for example, most of the groups are gender and race related, but sometimes in some instances we talk about rural versus urban groups. In an international community, uh, though the gender and uh, gender and race are less relevant, but what is more relevant, would be, especially for language assessment, would be country of origin, language, native language, and combinations of those. So that's one aspect of fairness. And in order to do that in assessment, what we as the assessment expert need to do is to evaluate, first of all, to design the items and the whole test in a way that uh, is accessible to everyone. But then also, after the test is administered, to evaluate for what is known as DIF, differential item functioning, to ensure that given the ability of a person, the score of or two people from different groups, the, the scores are um, comparable. So this is one sign, one type of fairness. Another one is comparability over time, especially with high stakes assessment. People want to be able to use the, the results from the test to make decisions, and they want to do so over at least two years. So one of our responsibilities as testing experts is to ensure that those what are called scale scores maintain their meaning over the two years. This is really important and this is why test equating in general has been built. Many institutions actually do primarily test equating. What is test equating? Test equating is to, to apply statistical adjustments to the current distribution of scores to previous um, 
distributions or established distributions to ensure that the meaning of the scores at uh, the administration on uh, September 21st uh, is exactly the same as the one on um, August 21st. So why wouldn't they be the same? Some people might ask. Well, because in order to protect the security of the test, all of these testing administrations present test takers with unique items, new items. That uh, So it is important that we calibrate those different administrations together in different ways to figure out whether it happened that one test form might have been easier than another test form. Remember, all of these test forms are primarily developed by humans, at least in a traditional assessment, and therefore there is quite a variation in terms of the difficulty of the test from one administration to, to another. Therefore, test equating ensures that this variability is being controlled. So in addition to these two types of uh, fairness, we also have what we all, especially for international assessment, we talk about cultural bias. And in order to address that and make sure that we minimize or eliminate it, uh, we spend quite a lot of time in the design process. Um, and we bring in panels to evaluate our items and um, discuss with them whether particular questions could have an implicit cultural uh, knowledge that might be required to respond correctly. And of course, we are trying to avoid this type of items. So these are the three areas, I would say, that uh, we are very focused on to make sure that the tests are fair. Now, as we move into using artificial intelligence, and we do so more and more because this is the best way to scale up the human knowledge, is a leverage for us. It's not so much about intelligence, but it's much more about scalability. So now that we include much more artificial intelligence in our test development process, the issues of fairness have just slightly different meaning. For example, we are very much focused to ensure that what is called the training data, the examples for a, an artificial intelligence algorithm that are being used to train that model, to develop the model. So we ensure that those examples, those training data come from a representative sample. Uh, in addition to that, we want to make sure that all the other requirements and constraints that we have already on our assessment apply to the artificial intelligently generated items. For example, I mentioned the fab review, fairness and bias review with experts. Those experts will evaluate either types of items, regardless who developed them, whether a machine or whether a human. So they go through the same process that's very carefully designed to ensure that the items are free of potential biases, especially cultural biases or other uh, group biases. Any suggestions for best practice if you want to create questions that don't have cultural bias? What's the best way of doing that? 
Well, this is a tricky <laughs> uh, question. I don't know if I have directly best practices. Uh, it's quite a lot of work. So what we do uh, is, as I said before, uh, we spend a lot of time in the design phase. Uh, then we would use the generation of item, which can be human-made uh, or can be machine-made. Um, if it's machine-made, then we will also have automatic filters to uh, exclude, for example, inappropriate words uh, or even inappropriate topics. And then we will have both types of items sent to a human uh, review. So all of this work is done before they make it, say, into a large sample uh, pre-pilot or pilot test. And then we pilot them to ensure that the items are appropriate, that they function well psychometrically. But then we also make sure that we have sufficient data to look at least at some large groups. And only after that, we put them on the certified test. And then after the administration, and once we have sufficient data to uh, evaluate them, uh, we are going to do DIF analysis. So another question in this area, sometimes people criticize standard tests, not necessarily yours, but other standardized tests that say that they uh, correlate too well with sort of family wealth uh, and that people who are better, come from better off families tend to do better at standardized tests. What do you think the right answer to that sort of comment is? Well, I mean, this is definitely a uh, an observation. You remember my dissertation was about uh, causal inferences and correlation doesn't mean causation. And this is an example of that. So wealth is definitely a mediator variable. It's not a causal variable. And I'm saying that in a, not that I didn't run the analysis, but of course I read because uh, there is quite a lot of literature on this topic. Um, so what do I mean by that? Um, let's just take an example. Uh, all of us heard about this big scandal that was in the United States a year or so ago, where very rich people went to ridiculous extents to pay uh, coaches and I don't know whom else to make sure that their kids get into the school. Now, if wealth alone would have provided those children with an advantage on this test, obviously all of this, uh, all of these crimes, if you want, would not have been necessary. Sure. The wealth is alone would have given them access to universities, but it's not that simple. So what happens is, especially in the United States, as you know, as everyone knows, we do have a lot, a lot of inequity in our society. And that starts very, very early. That starts truly, you know, during the pregnancy of the mother. So um, all of those inequities just add up uh, the, the, the lack of opportunities for many children um, that happen in childhood and when they need to develop their uh, vocabulary, the lack of opportunity in, uh, in primary years when they need to learn how to read. I mean, reading is really a, an important skill and many people still don't master it until very, very late, if ever. So all of those inequities just sum up and the test illustrates that problem. I know many people probably will disagree with me, but um, again, think about many of this uh, a wealthy family probably uh, have other types of expectations, offer opportunities for their children over the years to learn, not necessarily about the test, but over time. So they have 
many more, their vocabulary is richer, uh, their experience in terms of perhaps uh, travels, books read, participation in conversation, all of this that leads to, if you want, to a cultural advantage. And the test is just reflecting that back to us. And of course, it's very hard. It's a hard mirror to look at as a society. And we do have to, to come together to fix that. I don't think it's the test alone. My problem with the test, the current test, um, most of them is uh, they do not reflect the way people learn, people uh, work, people study. Uh, they are not digitally mediated. And look where we are now on different continents doing this podcast. So this is the way where how people study and the pandemic again illustrated all of that. So uh, my opinion is that the important tests need to be updated to reflect all of these changes in the society. Alina, that's a brilliant answer to that question. I think one of the best answers, if not the best answer I've heard to it. Th thank you. So look, I know you moved on from ETS to ACT, and I know you're now at uh, Duolingo. Could you tell me a little bit about the Duolingo tests and what it is that Duolingo do, do well? Oh, it's my pleasure to say that. Uh, so I was actually an, a technical advisor for the Duolingo English test since 2017, and then I joined them full-time last summer. Uh, so I was aware of uh, all the efforts that the company put to grow up this test, uh, and it's just fascinating. And I truly believe that this is this is the paradigm towards the other test uh, should aim to, um, to achieve. And I believe this is already happening. So there are many other companies now who either modify their test or created new tests that try to emulate how Duolingo works, the business model, even the font and the colors, actually. So I would say uh, what I like about the Duolingo English test is that it's extremely socially motivated. The idea is how can we use technology to lower barriers for everyone everywhere? And as such, all the efforts that everyone does, psychometricians, um, language experts, business people, everyone that comes together to develop a test works under these premises. So in all the decisions are vetted by, can this test be better for our test takers all over the world? Do we help them more than uh, than with the previous, um, say, uh, situation when we want to make it every time we want to make a change, we'll discuss that. So let me tell you a bit in more detail what I mean by that. In order to deliver a test anytime, anywhere, 24-7, all over the world, one needs an amazing, sophisticated platform to do that delivery. You know how much, how, you know, there are internet connection problems, there are server problems and so on. So in order to actually deliver such a test, one needs an, an amazing platform just for that purpose, to make sure that the data can go back and forth. Now, what other advantages do we have for test takers? We want them to have a short experience because we know it's very hard to take the test online. How can you do a short test while still having the right level of reliability? Well, psychometrics tell, has told us that the best way to achieve those two constraints is by using a computer adaptive test. So the Duolingo English test is adaptive. 
So it adapts very quickly to the ability of the test takers and each item that is administered depends on how the person responded into the previous item. So the, the length of the test is an important piece in our efforts of making the test, um, the test taker experience as comfortable as possible. So essentially a short test is more inclusive and more helpful to the stakeholders? Yes, especially when delivered online. Especially when delivered online, because it's very hard to sit for four hours to take uh, a different type of test, which many people have tried, just taking their, uh, you know, sitting in test taking experience in a test center and putting that online. So obviously that didn't work well because it's very hard. How do you deal with breaks? How do you deal with security? Security. So let me tell you how we think about security and why um, why I believe our model is better than any other model I'm aware of. Sure. The best approach to security is to make sure that actually it, it wouldn't matter much. What do I mean by that? Again, psychometrics and machine learning uh, offer us tools to create and scale up especially to scale up the items that will be put on the test. So here is where the strength of artificial intelligence come to place. Human experts with appropriate algorithms work together to create many, many, many items and place those into the item pool. So therefore, our test is pretty much secure by the simple fact that people don't get a chance to see the same items again. And that means that even if someone will copy and try to learn about the items, it will be uh, useless to them because next time there will be a different item. So this also, in order to, or with this technology, not only that we address the security problem, or at least one of the security problems, but we also lower the cost because the highest cost for, as you know, for a test development is truly the uh, the test development. And by having that many thousands and thousands of items um, in, in this fashion using artificial intelligence, we definitely lower the cost. So the cost, we think it's extremely important for people all over the world. We know uh, how much uh, $49.99 call, uh, mean uh, here, but also in different countries. And our competition, I believe, is at least twice as much, if not more than that. Thank you. I think uh, there's probably a lot more you could tell us about the, the Duolingo test, but I am keen to ask a couple of other questions. We were talking earlier, you said you had a sort of automatic dashboard that sends alerts if any, any system uh, goes out of place. Could you just briefly describe that before I go on and ask you a completely different question? In this past year, we developed a system that's completely automatic. It's called uh, Aqua Analytics for Quality Assurance in Assessment. And this system is based on these principles of computational psychometrics, where you, we apply multiple types of uh, models uh, from relatively simple and straightforward psychometrics to quite complex computational models to evaluate the data over time. Uh, it's very 
similar to what I mentioned before uh, for the other tests that are continual. So we have now everything automatic. We evaluate any change in scores um, at a time on a time unit that is of our choice. At the moment, the time unit is one week, but we also predict that very soon we might need to do it twice a week. So what we are doing is evaluate all types of psychometric metrics not only uh, about the item parameters, as some uh, assessment experts might understand, but we look at uh, subscores, we look at differential item functioning, we, we look at different subgroups, um, and we do have the system set up in such a way that it will send us uh, Slack messages or email messages in case anything goes outside of the confidence interval that we allow for. That's really interesting and sounds very, very innovative. Can I change tack a bit and just ask you about sort of glass ceilings and whether you've ever had any challenges, because you're now one of the leading people in the assessment space worldwide. Has it, has it ever been uh, difficult uh, being female and uh, did you ever feel any discrimination or has it been very equal affair? Uh, thank you for that question. I, I probably can say that I did not have any discrimination at a, at a large scale. Uh, most of the companies, the first two companies I worked for in the United States, ETS and ACT, have had uh, more women uh, than men in our field in, uh, in R&D. Um, so that was never a problem. But there were a lot of microaggressions, if you want, in that context. And one source of those issues probably have been the fact that I uh, I took my husband's name and uh, a lot of my work has been always attributed to him, uh, also given that he's in the same field. Um, so that led, so I guess it, it was very specific to our situation. Um, some other experiences are also related to how people look. So, you know, the people, because there are not that many women in our field, then there are some expectations. I'm not sure where they are coming from <laughs> that people, you know, if you are a woman in this field, you, I don't know, should have glasses, should uh, not have a makeup and so on. Uh, and definitely I'm not that type of person. So I guess that, that led to a lot of uh, unpleasant circumstances in, um, in some settings. But I would say for the most part, um, I did not feel uh, being discriminated against. And uh, I think I was just very lucky working with very nice people. Well, probably very brilliant as well. But um, uh, what advice would you give people who want to progress in assessment? Oh, well, I, I mean, definitely I would, especially nowadays, I would advise people to learn uh, and do their best to take courses in machine learning. I would advise people to uh, evaluate or take courses in advanced statistics that include uh, stochastic processes, so analysis of data that has dependencies over time. Uh, I believe these are really important for the new generation of assessment that we are talking about. Um, for other type of experts or in general for everyone, I would recommend everyone set up their priorities in good times. Like what is important to me? How do I want to 
um, to solve the problems that uh, that occur, so that when you know when there is a pressure, uh, then one already has the priorities clarified and just tries to follow those. And then for all researchers, I would recommend that to try to take a step back and look at the role of assessment in society, at the role of education in society, and try to to ask oneself where is the best place for me to work? Where can I make a difference? And what are the important questions that the society is trying to solve? And how can I contribute to it? So I think that mindset uh, can be very helpful, especially for the um, for the junior psychometricians or researchers who are immediately after their PhD. So they are just so focused on tiny, tiny little details that they've been working on during the PhD, as it was, of course, appropriate. But now that they work, say, for a company or that they are at university, it would be good to step back and see the big picture and evaluate where can I help? That's a great, great advice to people. And uh, I remember one of the things you, you said to me once is you've only got uh, 24 hours in, in life be, in each day. Be as honest as possible with your priorities. And uh, that feels like very good advice. Alina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I feel almost uh, sort of honoured, privileged to hear you. And I hope that our audience feel the same. There's a lot of great stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, John. It was, it was brilliant. Uh, so thank you, everybody, all our audience, for joining us today. Uh, please reach out to me directly at johnandquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to see the conversation going. And you can see more information on Duolingo on their uh, website. And if you want more information on Question Mark, uh, our website at questionmark.com has a lot of resources, and we have many best practice webinars as well. And thanks again for listening. And please tune in for another exciting podcast that we'll be releasing shortly. Mm-hmm.